Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. One thing is for sure, amidst fast economic growth and huge numbers of job openings and supply chain problems, the prices of a wide variety of products has been rising at the fastest rate since the early 1980s. Now, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is causing chaos in oil markets, perhaps adding to the toll people are paying at the pump and elsewhere. So is inflation here to stay? Can this all be blamed on big corporations flexing their market power? How should the government try to tackle rising prices? We'll try to get past the inflation headlines to think about our economic moment in American and global history. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Inflation. The second someone says inflation It invokes the specter of the 1970s, a time of economic crisis, energy shocks, and the fracturing of the post-war social contract. The historical analogy also suggests some courses of action like cutting government spending and raising interest rates. But are the 2020s, with our pandemic-related supply shortages and great resignation, so similar to the 1970s? And regardless, the economy has changed, been financialized and globalized, So how should we be thinking about our inflation? For the rest of the show, we'll be joined by a historian and an economist who'll help us think through what rising prices have meant and what they mean today. Joining us are Meg Jacobs, a senior research scholar in history and public affairs at Princeton University. Welcome, Professor Jacobs. Thanks for having me. As well as J.W. Mason, an economist at the Roosevelt Institute and a professor of economics at John Jay College at City University of New York. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So first we need to talk about Ukraine and Russia. Price of oil is now up around $120 a barrel. It's bouncing around a lot right now. So that's kind of close to a doubling uh, since November. J.W., let's start with you first. How are you looking at the situation and its effect on prices here in the U.S.? I think we have to be clear. 
we're not seeing a broad-based rise in prices. People think inflation. They think the price of everything is going up. That's not what's happening right now. Over the past uh, year, about two-thirds of the excess inflation we've seen, um, the inflation above the target of 2%, comes from just automobiles and energy. Um, that's only about 15% of the consumption basket, but it's about two-thirds of the excess inflation. And energy prices in particular have very little to do with the state of the U.S. economy. Global oil prices are high and likely to go higher because of situations in global energy markets, particularly, of course, what's going on with Ukraine and Russia, one of the world's biggest energy suppliers. So I think it would be a real um, mistake intellectually and could be a real disaster uh, in terms of policy if we took these global rising energy prices as a sign that that the U.S. economy is overheating. You know, mm. if I ask you the question, you know, does the fact that Putin invaded Ukraine, does that mean American wages are too high? I think it sounds like a pretty silly question, but effectively that is the hawk case. The case for raising interest rates is exactly that, that because we have this uh, situation in, in Russia and Ukraine, therefore Americans need a pay cut. Mm. You know, I want to talk about automobiles before we go over to Meg, too. I mean, really interesting situation there, right? Because at least some chunk of that rising, uh, the, the rising prices there are due to the fact that they didn't, they cut their semiconductor orders and haven't been able to produce enough cars because they're missing this relatively cheap component, right? JW. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. You know, the, the ironic thing is that if you go back to spring of 2020, and there were you know plenty of news stories at, about it at the time, uh, auto manufacturers anticipated a long, deep recession, you know, a jobless recovery like we had after the last couple of recessions. And so they planned for that. They cut back their orders of, of uh, various inputs, especially semiconductors, on the assumption that nobody was going to be buying cars for a long time. And then, you know, thanks in part to, to very good policy choices that were made. We didn't have that kind of uh, scenario. In fact, we've had a very rapid recovery. And so there's a lot of people who want to buy cars, especially because, you know, the ongoing pandemic has shifted a lot of consumer demand away from the sort of services people might normally consume and towards uh, durable goods, uh, of which autos are, are one of the biggest ones. And so because auto companies did not plan for this demand, they planned for the opposite. They've been caught flat footed. And the nature of the semiconductor industry is, is it doesn't turn on a dime. Orders are placed way in advance. These are very specialized components. If they're not being produced for the auto manufacturers, they're not, they're just not available. And so it's really this, this decision, this anticipation early on that we were going to have a very weak recovery or a long downturn that's kind of haunting us now. Um, you know, and auto companies obviously are working to get production back up and they're trying to get semiconductor, you know, back online and in the longer run to maybe move some of that, that, that type of um, production in-house or back to the United States. But the immediate situation is that we, we basically did better than the auto companies were expecting and they, they didn't plan for strong demand. So it would, be, it would be sort of weird and ironic if we sort of felt like because auto companies expected a weak recovery, now we have to actually follow through and give them the weak recovery. We have to you know, tamp down incomes and tamp down consumer spending until the demand for cars is as low as, low as what the auto companies had planned for. I think, I think that would really be kind of a perverse result especially because we know that, you know, if we just give them time, they're going to bring this back online. There, there is no sense in which the world has lost the ability to produce automobiles. We have not forgotten how to produce cars, and it's just going to take time to reorient, uh, to, to, to bring production back up to the level of where demand is now. 
Yeah. Meg Jacobs, senior research scholar at Princeton University, also author of Panic at the Pump, The Energy Crisis and the Transformation of American Politics in the 1970s. Wanted to go to you on the Ukraine-Russia war and its effect on, on oil prices. How are you reading this, given your emphasis in your research on the importance of energy shocks? I think a couple of things are true. Um, I think even prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Americans were already worried about high prices at the gas pump. Um, And historically, it's true that um, Americans don't like high prices at the gas pump. So, um, and they tend to blame politicians uh, for that situation. And so that's been a real challenge for Joe Biden, even before, um, even before uh, the geopolitical situation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was true in the 1970s. It's been true with every sort of uh, bump up in prices since then, and it's true now. Uh, The question, I think, the way, I think the um, Russian invasion changes the conversation in two ways. One is, are the gas prices gonna continue to go up? And two, is there a way of reframing it so that this is not part of a larger sort of inflationary um, situation, Hmm. but as Joe Manchin himself said, uh, who, who has been a hawk on inflation issues, but I believe he recently said, this is war. So does the, uh, so you're going to have a situation, I think, in which the prices are likely to go up, but then the question is, um, do we see this as just sort of, um, Joe Biden's fault? Or do we see this, do Americans come to understand this as part of a larger geopolitical struggle over principles that are greater than just the convenience and cost of what we're paying for gas? You know, part of the impetus for doing the show was to give people historical understanding of what was happening in the 1970s so that as events arise now in our current times, people can say, well, you know, that's not that similar to what's going, what happened back then, or that is similar to what happened back then. Can you talk to us a little bit about what was seen as kind of the inflationary crisis of the 1970s and, and what its sort of underlying causes were insofar as we actually understand them? Uh, great question. And um, the the inflationary crisis of the 1970s was often just called an energy crisis um, because uh, uh, the situation was much more complicated. Um, and I'll let JW speak to sort of how to think about the inflation of the 70s compared to the inflation today. But just in terms of sort of popular understanding of what the problem was, uh, they saw gas prices uh, going up, quadrupling. Uh, For the first time, Americans had to pay more than a dollar for a gallon of gasoline. The gas pump, that was such um, uh, such a radically new thing that the gas pumps didn't even have three digits to accommodate uh, prices more than a dollar. And uh, and so it was really sort of a shock because up until the 1970s, cheap and abundant oil was something that Americans had depended on. And um, and so when the energy crisis uh, begins or really sort of accelerates and takes hold in popular imagination is uh, with the unrest in the Middle East. Um, 
uh, in the fall of 1973 with the outbreak of the Arab-Israeli war and, um, and the, the imposition of an Arab embargo on exports uh, to America, um, to the US. And uh, this, some described it as an energy Pearl Harbor that it just sort of was this massive shock to the system because it was such a radical break from what had come before. Yeah. We actually have a cut. It's cut two of Richard Nixon talking to the nation in the wake of some of those events. When I spoke to you earlier, I indicated that the sudden cutoff of oil from the Middle East had turned the serious energy shortages we expected this winter into a major energy crisis. That crisis is now being felt around the world, as other industrialized nations have also suffered from cutbacks in oil from the Middle East. Shortages in Europe, for example, are far more critical than they are in the United States. Already, seven European nations have imposed a ban on Sunday driving. Fortunately, the United States is not as dependent upon Middle Eastern oil as many other nations. We will not have a ban on Sunday driving, but as you will hear later, we're going to try to limit it. I find this so fascinating to hear Richard Nixon talking about limiting Sunday driving when that's not really part of our current discussion at all, right? I mean, trying to sort of reduce uh, oil demand in that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the the uh, the amount of regulations that uh, Americans lived with uh, were quite stunning in the 1970s and would be shocking to your listeners today. This is uh, so one solution that actually did happen was the imposition of a 55 mile per hour speeding limit. Mm-hmm. Um uh, as a way to try to cut back on demand. And the idea was, well, Americans should drive slower and this will retain necessary um, oil to power American industry and, and that will be a worthwhile trade-off. Uh, what Americans were, Americans didn't like the speed limit. What they were even less happy about uh, were the rising prices and also the long lines at gas stations. Uh, and the problem for American politicians at the time is they didn't have really good solutions to either of those. Yeah. Uh, but Richard Nixon did try because he understood that uh, these gut level issues, as he called them, were very consequential for Americans. We're talking about the history of inflation in the United States and how this history shapes how we think about inflation today with Meg Jacobs, senior research scholar in history and public affairs at Princeton, also author of Panic at the Pump, and J.W. Mason, an economist at the Roosevelt Institute and a professor of economics at John Jay College at City University of New York. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum right after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about inflation today, in particular, the history of inflation in the U.S. and the kind of force that that exerts on American thinking about inflation now. We're joined by Meg Jacobs, a senior research scholar at Princeton, as well as J.W. Mason, an economist at the Roosevelt Institute and a professor of economics at John Jay College. J.W., I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the other way that people talked about inflation in the 1970s, which was this quote-unquote, wage price spiral. Can you talk a little bit about what people meant by that and why it was sort of a significant way of of thinking about inflation? Well, the reasoning, and I'm not sure how well this ever really matched up to reality, but but the reasoning was that, on the one hand, wages are a big component of prices for, for most businesses, which is true as far as it goes. And on the other hand, um, because of the strength, in large part because of the strength of the labor movement and for other institutional reasons, workers had a, had a greater ability to, to protect themselves against inflation through rising wages. So, for instance, a lot of union contracts had cost of living increase, um, uh, you know, provisions in them where if, if the cost of living goes up by a certain percent, then wages also go up by that percent. And so the idea was that if you have a rise in prices, workers are then sort of automatically entitled or in a position to demand higher wages and those higher wages get passed on to higher prices and so on. I I think the importance of this honestly gets exaggerated for the 1970s. Um, You know, most workers then as now were not covered by union contracts. Most contracts didn't have those sort of automatic escalator clauses. And even when they did, there was often a ceiling on it or a limit to how far Mm -hmm. it would go. So the notion that this is sort of a one-to-one thing is is not very plausible, even for the 70s. But it's, of course, much less plausible today when those sort of contracts are essentially extinct. And um, where also, of course, the inflation we're seeing today is not in the sort of labor-intensive sectors of the economy where where wages are rising rapidly. Uh, So the notion that this is a case where sort of wages are are pushing up prices and then prices are pushing up wages. I I think it's questionable how well it fits the 70s, but it certainly does not fit today. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting is, you know, you go back, like I've read a book called The Age of Fracture by Daniel Rogers, which talks about the way that one of the reasons why inflation was important in the 1970s was it was it Keynesians, the people who were really in charge of the economy, at least or at least were informing the policy uh, of the American government at the time, had a difficult time explaining exactly what was happening, right? Yeah, I think I think that's true. I, I think it's maybe exaggerated a little bit how, how much of a problem it was. You know, again, the, the oil price shock had a, had a huge impact on inflation in the 1970s, just as it is today. And that wasn't a, a puzzle. It wasn't a mystery to people then. I think there's a certain element where there was a sort of opportunistic moved by people who opposed Keynesian policies, opposed the welfare state, opposed the sort of post-World War II settlement where unions were kind of accepted as partners in the economy. The inflation of the 70s gave them their opportunity to try to really reverse all of that and, and kind of turn back the clock to a more deregulated economy. And, you know, clearly for the people, you know, in, in, the, in Volcker at the Fed and for people like that, you know, weakening the power of organized labor was a critical component of what they saw as the fight against inflation. So I think I think there's a sense. 
I, I think it may be a little bit exaggerated in retrospect that this was some sort of fundamental problem for, for the sort of type of economic management that had existed up till then, as opposed to it, it created an opportunity for people who were trying to, to push a different agenda. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the history of inflation and inflation-fighting policy with J.W. Mason, economist at the Roosevelt Institute, and Meg Jacobs, a senior research scholar at Princeton. We'd love to hear from you, too. Do you remember the 1970s inflation or any other inflationary period in the U.S.? Do you see parallels? Do you see differences? We'd love to hear uh, how it feels to you. And we're also wondering, how much is today's inflation actually affecting your behavior? You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. or KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I uh, got some great listener comments already, and I want to direct this one to you, Meg. Uh, Steve writes, the United States has used screen control, pricing controls, I think, in the past to help met- mitigate the effect of inflation on consumers. Indeed, price controls continue to exist in several parts of the economy, such as electric and natural gas rates, some parts of health care and rent. How might price controls be employed in other areas of our economy to help us get past this current event? And what about the companies that continue to raise prices rather than allow their profit margin to decrease? I think that's an excellent question. And I think that um, that goes along with what JW is suggesting here, that um, uh, rather than sort of talk about uh, inflation um, and the wage price spiral as the sort of objective economic measures, the question is how... uh, how are these also political choices and political choices for what we want to sort of prioritize specifically between uh, profits and wages? So there is this sort of this rhetoric now that we don't have an inflation problem. We have a corporate greed problem that's starting to gain some traction, um, too. Um, and the idea is that if there are sort of these inflationary pushes coming from particular sectors, whether that's rent or cars or meat or oil, um, as well as uh, sort of ongoing discussions about uh, prescription drugs, for example, or educational debt, uh, should we talk about how we can moderate those price increases as opposed to sort of imposing a slowdown through raising interest rates um, across the whole economy. I think that that's sort of what your listener is asking. And I would point to um, the 1940s um, as a moment where we made very different choices uh, than those that seem to be on the agenda today. Uh, The 1940s was our experiment with across the board price controls. This was a time of war and price controls were seen to be patriotic act um, that uh, Franklin Roosevelt called on the housewives of America to help enforce by sort of reporting any local retailers who were violating price controls. Um, And Americans by and large uh, appreciated what they perceived to be the equity of both price controls and rationing. So that's a very different approach uh, than the one that we're seeing today. Wow. JW, I know this is also a period of history that you're quite uh, um, interested in. Can you talk to us about how you see that uh, just after post-World War II uh, period? That's right. As as Meg said, during the war itself, price controls were used. And once they were sort of phased in and they got the bugs worked out, they were actually very effective. 
But those price controls were removed almost immediately at the end of hostilities. And as a result, uh, there was a very large spike in inflation immediately after the war. Uh, inflation uh, reached 20% at annual rates in the immediate post-war period, which is actually much higher than it got during the 70s or, or let alone today. The interesting thing is that that inflation then came down quite rapidly to the point that actually inflation hit zero by the end of the decade. Hmm. And that happened without any action by the Fed at all, because throughout the 1940s up to the 1951 or 52, um, the Fed was still uh, absolutely committed to keeping interest rates on government debt fixed. So there was no monetary policy in the way that we think of it. Today, people say, oh, it's the Fed's job to deal with inflation. In the 1940s, the Fed's hands were completely tied. And yet inflation came down. It came down very steadily and very rapidly during the course of the decade. Why is that? Well, the answer is simple. During the war, we had a wartime economy. We had an enormous amount of production that was geared towards producing military equipment, vehicles, and so on. It took time to reconvert those factories and other uh, you know, forms of production back to civilian production, but that happened. And once it happened, supply rose to meet demand. Instead of having this idea, oh, if demand is running ahead of supply and prices are uh, rising, we have to pull down demand. We have to reduce incomes. We have to reduce spending. In the late 40s, we didn't do that. We actually waited until supply caught up with demand. Production rose to satisfy the purchases that people were trying to make. And that happened, again, without any intervention by the Fed. And it was uh, successful in, 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 in bringing down inflation simply by having that supply side adjustment. So I think we should, we should take seriously the possibility that at least in a lot of the areas where we've seen rising prices over the past year, not energy, but certainly, for instance, autos, that supply side adjustment will happen if we just give it time to, to work. And the analogy there is really that production got out of whack because of the pandemic and spending was going different places than it might otherwise. And it takes a there's like a lag period, essentially, for producers to catch up with making the stuff that people want to buy. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, got some, I, I think we've both been, well, all three of us really have been sort of talking a little bit around what was done in the late 1970s uh, by Paul Volcker at the, at the Fed. One of our listeners tweets, government spending wasn't cut under Carter or Reagan to address inflation. So far as I know, it was the sharp rise in interest rates, cheaper goods from abroad, and the deflationary effect of high-tech's constant and rapid improvement that ended inflation, the breaking of unions through imports, a somewhat terrible recession, and a hostile National Labor Relations Board helped too. JW, what do you think of that uh, summary for what ended uh, inflation? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, I think that Volcker proved that if you are willing to raise interest rates enough and ignore the needs of, of business as well as the complaints of labor, and you're willing to provoke an extremely deep recession, you know, with very high unemployment and all of the suffering and hunger and homelessness and disruption to people's lives that come with that, if you push that far enough, you can bring down inflation. You can create a situation where workers are terrified to ask for a raise, where they'll accept whatever wages businesses are offering, and businesses are terrified to try to raise prices because nobody has any money to buy what they're offering. And eventually, you can control inflation that way. Um, it's it's probably true, you know, as as the call, as the person said that um, trade trade played a role in that period too. I, I'm not sure about the technology piece, but um, but I think I think that's right. But the question is, is that the only way to control inflation? Is it the best way to control inflation? Is the Volcker model the only model? I think I think that's the question we should be asking. I think I think the the you know the person is right that we that is that is a model that was employed and does seem to have worked. But we shouldn't you know. We shouldn't convince ourselves without looking hard for alternatives that that's that there are no there are no other ways of dealing with the problem. Yeah. 
You know, Meg Jacobs, uh, senior research scholar at Princeton, the the Volcker shock, as it's sometimes called. You know, before I really started to study up on this, I it struck me as something that was somewhat celebrated. Certainly, is celebrated in people who study the Fed, um, and people seem to see it as a successful thing in some corners of of the world. But it also did, you know, as JW alluded to, extract this like enormous toll, particularly on just re- regular working people. How are you seeing the scholarship in history around evaluating the, you know, costs and, and benefits of raising interest rates in the way that it was done and and really keeping the dollar uh, extremely strong, which made it tough on American manufacturers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I think the context, the historical context is useful here uh, because um, what might surprise some listeners, although your listeners seem pretty well informed, uh, is that it was Jimmy Carter who first brought, a, a Democrat obviously, who first brought Volcker in. Uh, and it was Jimmy Carter who, as he's contemplating what he believed to be a trade-off uh, in policy decisions between inflation and employment, erred on the side of combating inflation. Uh, that was a departure for Democratic presidents. Uh, Jimmy Carter was a different kind of Democratic president. He was a peanut farmer from the South. He did not have the same kind of institutional ties to, for example, large industrial unions, uh, manufacturing unions. Uh, That wasn't his mindset. And he basically, uh, because of his own experience, because of his sort of moral values, believed in an austerity agenda. So Mm -hmm. that austerity agenda started under Jimmy Carter and then Ronald Reagan uh, doubled down on it and accelerated it. Um, And so uh, we should see this turn to the Volcker shock as, um, and and this is how it's perceived in the literature, as a sort of larger shift away from the sort of New Deal mentality and set of policies and kind of liberalism that had dominated most of the post-war period. I just add, though, um, as much as, uh, so JW referred to the the Volcker method as working, um, uh, as he knows too, it was not without political costs. So we know that Ronald Reagan won in 1980. We know he won re-election in a, in a landslide in 1984. And in 1984, he ran on the slogan, Morning in America. Well, he could run on that slogan of sort of revived economy because the economy had really uh, sunk to a low in 1982. And in those midterm elections, um, he, he, the Republicans were really vulnerable for having generated that kind of recession and choosing to fight inflation over uh, over unemployment. Yeah, it's almost unbelievable to imagine people making that same uh, decision now. I want to hear, just so people can, can hear Jimmy Carter, we do have a cut of him, uh, and it's a nice lead into thinking about that austerity agenda. Here's uh, Jimmy Carter. We must face the fact that the energy shortage is permanent. There is no way we can solve it quickly. But if we all cooperate and make modest sacrifices, if we learn to live thriftily and remember the importance of helping our neighbors, then we can find ways to adjust and to make our society more efficient and our own lives more enjoyable and productive. 
Meg, it's uh, so interesting to uh, to hear talk about energy in the 1970s, the area that I've I've studied a lot, and and in fact, the energy shocks did you know set off all kinds of people uh, along the path to quote unquote alternative energy. In this round. What are we expecting? Ra, uh, one of our listeners, uh, Razan, asks, can the inflated oil prices dovetail with a strategy to decrease global warming? Uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, that that's the ideal version. Um, and at moments, um, those who support uh, a clean energy future, you know, they see this as a significant sort of turning point. Um, and in essence... Uh, what the the clip you played from Carter was was one of the more mild um, sort of uh, <laughs> rebuke of the American public um, at the height of the gas lines in 1979, as people are sort of going berserk over high energy prices and long lines. He um, delivers a speech in which he says. Uh, owning material things is not going to lead to happier lives. Uh, so that's quite a quite a thing for an American president to say. Um, uh, Probably not I totally think, wrong. Um, unusual though, as as political rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, I think so. So so it came across as very scolding, and I think he missed an opportunity to sort of reframe and say. Listen, there's all these ways that democracy and independence and security and a clean, clean energy future, that wouldn't have been his language, but something like that, all work together. Um, and by the way, we can sort of have a green jobs economy. He never really sort of framed it that way. It was more mm -hmm. about the need to sort of stop indulging ourselves. Um, so I think that there's a way today to sort of talk about uh, a pivot, a pivot uh, away from fossil fuels. It's interesting to even see some of the oil companies who are trying to think through this transition for themselves and what they sort of do uh, to sort of craft an argument that these are sort of reinforcing, um, that we can sort of, um, that we can shore up democracy and security and uh, address climate change all at once. But it has to be, I think, in a way that doesn't just depend on uh, chastising or criticizing Americans for their indulgent ways, but really sort of shows how this can be a win-win all the way across the board. Yeah. Well, it's sad, too, because he did provide more funding for alternative energy and, and start a lot of research paths. You know, he put solar panels on the White House. Things did, ha in fact, happen. Of course, there was solar hot water heating, but they, but the Carter administration seemed to have a possibility, but like you said, kind of, kind of missed it. We're talking about the history of inflation in the U.S. and how this history shapes how we think about inflation today with Meg Jacobs, senior research scholar in history and public affairs at Princeton, author of Panic at the Pump, The Energy Crisis and the Transformation of American Politics in the 1970s, and J.W. Mason, a professor of economics at John Jay College at City University of New York, and we want to hear from you. Do you remember 1970s inflation? What parallels do you see today? And how much is inflation today affecting your behavior? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis. We're talking inflation with Meg Jacobs, a research scholar in history and public affairs at Princeton, and J.W. Mason, an economist at the Roosevelt Institute. And want to welcome uh, caller John from San Rafael into the show. Hi, John. Hi. Hi. Um, my question was around, uh, and this is more of a difference between now and 1970s, but um, the um, we've been told for a while now that America is either becoming or already uh, energy independent, right? Yet when we have these world uh, price increases, it still happens within the U.S. Uh, it's probably a pretty naive economic question, but um, why? What goes? <laughs> yeah, that's a great. I think that's a great question. Uh, maybe JW will start with you, and then uh, also take it to Meg. Well, you know, even if the U.S in the aggregate produces as much energy as it uses, it's still a global energy market. You know, producers here have the option of selling to the rest of the world and producers in the rest of the world have the option of selling here. Oil prices in the U.S., you know, move very closely with oil prices around the world. And that's true of any, generally any commodity that's widely traded is going to tend to trade at a similar price everywhere, even in places that actually are producing, meeting their own needs. That's that's sort of, you know, and we could we could have a different conversation about whether that sort of globalized economy is something we want or need or is inevitable. But that is sort of the nature of a globalized commodity. Things that are widely traded have have a more or less similar price everywhere in the world. Uh, So that's yeah, there's nothing there's nothing particularly strange or surprising about that. Yeah. And Meg, um, what do you think? I mean, I think one of the policy questions that raises is like, what is the actual value of, quote unquote, energy independence then? Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 uh, that's a good question, and um, this is this was true in the 1970s, um, and it's true today too. Which is even uh, to, just to echo what JW was saying, um, um, and and broaden it out a bit. Um, so even if we satisfy our own energy needs, um, what we're seeing today is relevant because our allies, uh, particularly our European allies, are dependent on um, on the fuel from Russia, much more, the, much more so than us. So we live not only in a globalized economy, but in sort of, um, we have global uh, geopolitical alliances. Um, so, uh, that means that we can't just sort of evaluate what's good for us. Um, in the 1970s, what was sort of interesting is uh, we were really up until the beginning of that decade, pretty self-sufficient. Um, then we did start to increase our imports. Uh, Ameri- and so um, when Richard Nixon, that clip that you played before, calls for energy independence, that's the first time you start to hear that phrase. Uh, this was a newsflash to Americans uh, who had no idea that we imported any oil whatsoever. Uh, and 
What's interesting is that um, in spite of calls for independence, our reliance on foreign oil actually increased um, and uh, continued to increase throughout the rest of the 20th century, uh, including at the moment of the first Gulf War, uh, when we were much more dependent than we are today. Uh, even if we've become more independent than we were 20 years ago, still it's a question not only of our needs, but of our allies' needs too. Yeah. Let's bring in another question on oil prices from Terry in San Francisco. Welcome. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, Yes, I I have a two-part question. One is, am I correct in um, thinking that we in the United States have had our uh, oil gasoline prices subsidized for a long time? Um, And if that's so, isn't that a form of socialism? Um, And why I'm mentioning that is that um, it seems to me that there's a frequent decline of socialism when it comes from maybe more conservative elements um, who don't want socialism in our healthcare system, et cetera. But isn't our subsidization a form of socialism? Or is, am I, do I have that, my facts incorrect? Or are there better terms to apply? <laughs> Thanks for that, Terry. Uh, Meg, how about you take that one? I was going to let JW take that. Oh, okay, JW, uh, you can take it. You can take it. Sub, okay. Subsidization of the of the oil industry. Well, I think the the broader point that the caller raises is absolutely right. That we've got this term socialism, and then we've got this term capitalism, as if a whole society is one thing or the other. But we have lots of activities here and in many countries that we might historically have called socialist countries that are carried out for private profit. And we have lots of activities from you know, our basic transportation infrastructure, public libraries, schools, and so on, that are carried out to meet public needs through some type of public planning process, which is what you could call socialism. So the idea that there's some bright line and we're not a socialist country, I think just inhibits a lot of rational debate. We shouldn't ask, you know, is this socialism? We should ask, are we making the right collective decisions about using our collective resources to meet our collective needs? Because we are absolutely doing that. We're making all kinds of choices right now, exactly as the caller says, and it's not just you know, direct subsidies, but it's all kinds of choices about how we organize land use and how we organize our economy that really favor dependence on, on fossil fuels and therefore, you know, reward the companies that produce that. And, and we could make different choices. You know, I think, that, you know, we talked a moment ago about energy independence. I think that the issue we want to be focused on in that terms is not independence from foreign oil, but independence from fossil fuels. We could collectively make a decision, and we are gradually making a decision to rely less on fossil fuels and more on other sources of energy for things like transportation and home heating and so on. You know, we don't necessarily have the ability to maintain low oil prices in the United States if oil prices are high globally. What we do have the ability to do is to ensure that high oil prices don't mean that your cost of getting to work has gone up. High oil prices don't mean the cost of heating your home has gone up by turning to other energy sources for that. And that's that's a collective decision we can make just as we've made up till now decisions that have tended to increase our reliance on fossil fuels. So I think the caller is absolutely right to say this is this is a political choice. And if that's what we if we mean by socialism, political choices about how we collectively use our resources, then you could call that a form of socialism. And so would be, uh, you know, a shift towards a more a more kind of green economy, less dependent on fossil fuels. Well, I think if we're realistic about the climate, it's really only a matter of time before we shift away from fossil fuels, but that that timing may actually make a huge difference if we can organize more quickly around it. Uh, Bill in Santa Rosa, welcome to the show. 
Thank you very much. Uh, listen, I'd like to ask our financial experts a question that's kind of been bothering me for a long time. I've been driving a long time. I was here when the Carter thing came up. I sold automobiles at 22% APR at the time. <laughs> but uh, the question I have is uh, the oil companies, the oil industry, when have they ever lost money, ever, in our last century and this up to now? When have they lost money like the people that go through these crises and have to spend $2 more a gallon than they really need to? Yeah. What about that? Yeah. Meg, what do you think? I think it's a good question, and I think um, my answer will be similar to JW's answer to the last question, which is, uh, I think the, the answer to your question is, no, they've done pretty well. Uh, and and uh, the question is, when do their, uh, their um when does their profitability become a problem for them? Uh, and so what we've seen is that in the 1970s, uh, the, they were, the phrase at the time was obscene profits, uh, that they were reaping obscene profits. Uh, Senator Henry Scoop Jackson held a hearing um, in January 1974. He called, I think, the executives from the eight largest uh, oil companies before Congress and in front of television cameras accused them of, 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 of earning obscene profits um, and capitalizing on geopolitical instability to raise, um, raise their prices. There was another component, too, to what uh, they what the accusation was is that they uh, similar to the discussions today that they had sort of monopolistic control um, all the way down to the gas pump and they were sort of driving out independent uh, gas retailers uh, and that was allowing them to really set the prices that they wanted to set. Um, so these have been sort of fought out these kind of political questions from their point of view and um, uh, they said, well, you know, it's becoming harder and harder to extract more and more fossil fuels. We have to dig deeper. We have to dig offshore. That's becoming more expensive. Uh, those were the claims that they made. Uh, those did not play politically well in the 1970s. Uh, I'm not sure where we are today. Profits are increasing. Uh, it's interesting that there hasn't yet been a big backlash uh, against the oil companies or a sort of, um, yeah. So I think Americans, here's a big statement, are just torn between sort of their desire to live the life that they are, have been living, and any sort of hope of a green future. Um, mm -hmm. And they get sort of caught in between the two. You know, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of those Scoop Jackson-like arguments lay fallow for quite a while and now they're back and and jw the question i wanted to ask you was how do we measure this sort of like corporate greed <laughs> i mean there must be is it just in sort of the profit margins of these companies or are there other ways that we can look at you know their mar market concentration or uh you know market power of these large companies in particular let's take oil companies I think profit margins is is reasonable. I think I think concentration is reasonable. I'm not sure that oil is necessarily the right place to look for a market concentration story. 
I think if we want to explain food prices, which are, which are a smaller but not trivial component of inflation and one that really does affect people pretty directly, I think if you want to talk about rising food prices, I think, I think there's a, um, a more reasonable case that the concentration of the food processing industry has allowed uh, food prices to rise more than the underlying costs have. Mm. Um, I think I think you can see that in terms of their margins, and certainly uh, you know we we know that that's a very concentrated industry. So I, I I feel like that would be the place, but I, I think it's a difficult a difficult thing to measure, and I think I don't know that we can do much better than than looking at the profit margins at you know at various points along the chain, because the company that's actually you know selling stuff to consumers is not necessarily where the excess profits are showing up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, like the retailer margins may not be where where it's sitting. Yeah. Um, uh, listener Paul writes, these gas prices should be a wake-up call to all Americans. I've been a car-free cyclist for the last 10 years while I recognize that increasing energy prices have negative effects across our economy. I have no sympathy for anyone who chooses to own and drive a car in the Bay Area when it's not a necessity with our excellent and extensive mass transit and existing bicycle boulevards, paths, lanes, and dedicated multi-use trails. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Want to change directions just a, a little bit. One of our listeners has a question about sort of the overall economic policy of the United States. So, uh, JW, we'll go, go back to you. Greg writes, can you discuss the continuous spread in wealth inequality since World War II with all of the economic policies since that time? I know that's a, um, a pretty big question, so let me narrow it just a little bit. How have the post-inflationary period or the, the reaction to the inflation in the 1970s, how did that change the wealth inequality story here in the United States? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that wealth inequality is always what we want to focus on, because for most of us, our, our wealth is actually not a big part of our, our standard of living or our economic security. You know, income is very important. Most of us all provide for the you know the things we need to live through the income that we get. We, we get dollars, mm-hmm. we spend dollars. Most of us do not depend on wealth for most meeting most of our needs. We have a job, we have a family, we have access to the social security system, and if we're lucky, an employer-provided pension. None of that stuff shows up as wealth, but it's very important in guaranteeing you the income that you're going to need to live your life. Um, so I think, and I think sometimes, you know, things that equalize the, division, the, 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 the distribution of wealth are actually kind of pernicious and, and really are actually contributing to inequality on a deeper level. You know, not, not too many years ago in the second Bush administration, there was a very big push to privatize Social Security and essentially convert it into a system of individual accounts. If you had actually carried that through, if they'd been able to carry that through, that would have been a huge uh, reduction in wealth inequality. All sorts of people who have very little financial wealth today would suddenly have these, these accounts, some of them with quite big numbers in them. But you would not have actually equalized people's life chances in any substantive way. In fact, probably mm-hmm. a lot of uh, lower income people would end up being worse off under that system. They have all this private wealth, but it doesn't generate the secure retirement system that the public system would have. Mm-hmm. Home ownership is another you know big example. We have... Mm-hmm. Most private wealth in this country is, 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 is in the form, for most people, the non-rich is in the form of a, a home that they own. But for a lot of people, you know, homeownership is not actually that great a deal. And if renting actually gave you the same kind of security that homeownership does, mm-hmm. if it gave you the same kind of protections, the right to remain in that home and so on, 
Um, for a lot of people, renting might be a better option. So rather than saying, how can we you know, make sure that everybody owns a home? Maybe we should be asking the question, how can we make sure everybody has the right to secure housing, is able to get secure housing without necessarily having to own a home? So I think, I think income inequality is a really fundamental question that, that um, reflects the sort of distribution of power and status and our social chances and our chances of having a decent life in a lot of ways. I think wealth inequality is a little bit trickier and we should not be so confident that a more equal distribution of wealth is actually getting us to a more equal society in a larger sense. Hmm. That's very interesting. Meg Jacobs, I want to ask you another one of these uh, big questions, which is, you know, you wrote an entire book about how powerful rising prices can be in politics. So what do you think this current round of rising prices is going to mean for, for our system here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, I think uh, what most uh, pollsters are showing is that it's going to most immediately mean midterm problems uh, for the Democrats. Um, And uh, and I I don't have any reason to think that that's not true. Um, I think that there is an opportunity to go like really long term picture uh, to reframe the inflation question. Um, I think that's really the only sort of political way out uh, if the Democrats want to be successful. Uh, And I think uh, President Biden tried to do this in his State of the Union address the other day. Uh, I think the word that JW used, security, is really a key one. And that's a word that Franklin Roosevelt first introduced Uh, as a goal of economic policy in this country uh, in the 1930s and in the 1940s. It's in the 1930s when we actually get social security, the idea that everyone should have security, um, that this is a societal objective, was a new idea, one that Franklin Roosevelt doubled down on when he proposed what he called the Economic Bill of Rights in 1944, saying that everyone had a right to housing, not necessarily to own, but a right to housing, a job, education, health care, high standard of living. Uh, And he sort of framed this and he said all of these rights uh, mean security. And uh, I think that's really the conversation Mm. that um, Democrats have to have if they want this uh, current moment, uh, inflationary moment to read differently uh, to Americans when they're trying to consider what are the policies that they think will actually improve their standard of living and bring security. Yeah. And just really quick before we have to go, do you think that the geopolitical chaos changes Biden's range of action? Well, uh, like I said before, I think that there's an opportunity to sort of reframe um, some of the immediate pain that Americans are experiencing, for example, at the pump to sort of say, you know, there's a larger geopolitical context for this to make Americans sort of more tolerant. And, uh, you know, Biden's big theme has been democracy versus autocracy. Mm -hmm. Democracy uh, can mean many things, and it can include things like greater economic security for American citizens. We've been talking about the history of inflation in the U.S. with Meg Jacobs, a senior research scholar at Princeton, and J.W. Mason, a professor of economics at John Jay College at City University of New York. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.